My guest today is Andy Cooper. He's the founder and CEO of Leapfrog Investments. He's a pioneering impact investor, and he's long been a hero of mine, which made this a very special interview. It was a thrill to have Andy sitting in my studio, ready and willing to answer all my questions, and I had a lot of them. It was tough working out what I most wanted to ask him and what you, my listeners, would want to hear about most. Andy was very generous with his time and his insights. I wanted to go deep on what made his investment approach stand out from the crowd when so many investors are adopting the impact investing label. He talked about his record-breaking fund, which has raised one billion Australian dollars. That's billion, with a B, folks. It's the world's biggest pure play impact fund, and it's estimated to impact some 70 million emerging consumers. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Tretgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Ever since I dived headlong into the world of impact investing so many years ago, I've been interested in Leapfrog. It has all the sophistication of the major private equity companies, but it's led by Andy with empathy and inclusiveness at its core. And it's this focus on inclusiveness that allowed Leapfrog to identify massive opportunities in emerging markets where poverty was a problem, but where a fresh and agile business model has proved to be a damn good solution. But we go deep on all this stuff, and I'm sure you're keen to hear from Andy. So let's dive in. The show notes and book recommendations are all on my website at johntreadgold.com. And please do leave us a review on iTunes, because it's the best way to help other people find the podcast. All right, without further ado, here's my conversation with Andrew Cooper. We're in here at Hub Australia in Sydney. I'm very lucky to have Andy Cooper with me. I've wanted to have Andy on this podcast ever since I launched it. And, and long before that, when I got into impact investing, he's the founder and head honcho at Leapfrog Investments. It is a global private equity impact investor, but Andy works from Bondi Junction, which is relatively local. So welcome, Andy. Thanks for coming in. It's great to be here. I think every article I've written on impact investing, I've used LeapFrog as an example. You guys are unique. You're having a lot of impact. You're making a lot of money, which is the neat balance. You do a lot of good work in, in measuring that impact. And these are all of the things I want to get into today. And there's you know, so much we can talk about with your company, but a lot of that's in the press releases and people have read about it. So I'd like to get a little bit deeper, You know, find out who you are and, and how, I don't know, the way private equity and impact investing are growing. So maybe we wind it back and ask, when did you start investing? I was 10 years old and we had piles of old newspapers because my mother was in the media. And I got interested in the mathematical patterns on the stock market pages and came up with a formula for investing on the stock market at that time. Hang on, 10-year-old. 10 years old. And I uh, walked out of my uh, mother's office, which was in the city, and the great diamond in Johannesburg building uh, where the stock market sat, gleamed before me. I walked in and I asked for a broker. They humored me and took me upstairs and I persuaded him that I should be buying stocks. 
I got uh, my family to sign on that I wasn't going to do anything crazy. And with my first 600 rand, so that's about $60 now, I started investing in the market. And I started generating pretty good returns. And within three years, by the time I was 13, I took on my first clients. So I effectively started my first investment company and used to call my broker from what was called the Tiki Box, which is the little phone booth where you throw in a bit of money at school during recess, during break, and would buy and sell stocks. And I loved it. I thought this was a fascinating, mathematically interesting, politically interesting thing to do. But... The even stranger experience I had at the same time was I was put in the only unsegregated school under apartheid at the time called Woodmead. It was a very social justice-oriented school that taught you that there was something more to life than either money or just a lot of the conventional things we pursue. And I really got to see the impact of social change and social oppression as well on people. So I had this purpose dimension to my life and I had this profit dimension to my life. And while I can tell you all the stories of the routes I took to eventually get there, what sits on the back of every leapfrog card to this day is the phrase profit with purpose. So in a sense, I was fortunate that ultimately I was able to combine these two things that I'd been so passionate about at the beginning, which was combining money with meaning and profit with purpose into one proposition. You've also combined, you know, this mathematics affinity with being really confident, which doesn't normally go together, especially for a 10-year-old. You'd think one would either be, you know, the math genius at home, but to have the, the chutzpah to wander up to a broker's firm and, and wave your fist and say, get, get me in there. You know, what sort of kid were you? I was definitely quirky and confident in that way, but I also think it's always important to say I was small. I was a kid who had the experience of being bullied and even moved schools a few times. I really had an early experience of what it was to be an outsider. My best friend was in South Africa was gay and had a sense of that exclusion at the time. And so I've always come from a perspective of understanding that it's very nice to be the center of the room and get applause or get achievement or whatever it is, but fundamentally with understanding that, you know, societies, organizations, all sorts of human groups have a lot of exclusion in them, and it can be very tough to be on the receiving end of that. So for me, the journey of life has always been about how do you get more inclusion and about fundamentally changing that, uh, the levels of exclusion. So in a sense, by getting to do this work, and I can talk all about the financially rewarding aspects of it, but in getting to do this work, I really get to help that little person in me and in all of us who had that experience of uh, exclusion and of being different and to be able to uh, help people who have not managed to get themselves out of that circumstance yet. And one of the essences of the leapfrog story is understanding that low-income and excluded people are not beneficiaries who we munificently 
lift into a better life, but that actually the trick is to identify those people as agents of their own destiny, people who are striving and working to rise. And so we call them emerging consumers and emerging producers. We don't call them beneficiaries or poor people or whatever those words are that create a sense of a lack of agency. And we see our companies as serving those millions of people as any company would do by saying what is it they really need, they really want, and they will buy, and you change to suit them rather than vice versa. And I think often with the tyranny of good intentions, people who are trying to save the world come from the other direction of an expressive act where they get to feel so wonderful for helping someone. Uh, I think it takes a real mindset shift uh, to do this through the capital markets and to think about those low-income and excluded people as agents who you serve. Yeah, so empathy and inclusion is certainly a mindset change within finance and coming at it from that angle is unique. But at the same time, you've shifted your perspective on charities and the traditional methods there. You've put a focus on agency and instead of offering aid, you're, you're asking your customers what they want. And there's a lot going on there. There's some big shifts. At the same time, your company has managed to fit into the framework of private equity investing with impact investing being a niche within that. So perhaps you can explain how you see a frog fitting into the world of PE investing and also let us know what you see as being unique about impact investing itself. Sure. Well, again, it's very easy to think that when you talk about empathy and inclusion, you can't be oriented towards building some kind of big and very effective and very financially rewarding business. And we really reject that. And I think we're an example of that, but many of the 27 companies we own, all of them, in fact, are examples of that. So today, LeapFrog has over $1.5 billion under management, US, so well over $2 billion Australian dollars. We have companies that reach 178 million people across 35 countries. And many of the world's largest and leading institutional investors from the likes of Prudential and AIG and MetLife through to JP Morgan and here Hester and QBE and Christian Super are investors with LeapFrog. So what all of that tells you is that the possibility to make investments at scale and in ways that are sophisticated and meet institutional needs and the key rubrics of investors now exists and exists in a very substantial way. People think that sounds too good to be true. So we've spent the last 10 years proving that it is true across multiple fund vehicles, across multiple geographies and across multiple types of investment. Now, what we believe is that the markets will increasingly move towards impact investing, but I think it's important to understand where this has all really started. And where it started is in private equity. Private equity people know about because of KKR and the barbarians at the gate or these kinds of stories or what Mitt Romney and Bain did uh, to buy private companies and grow them and then sell them at a profit. That's essentially what people know about, not companies bought on the stock market, but private companies. 
That's right. Mm. So it's investing in companies before they hit the stock market. It's not the likes of Amazon. Absolutely. Helping them grow. Absolutely. And uh, you can, as a private equity investor, make a great deal of money because you can take something that is undervalued or underappreciated, buy it, and grow it significantly, and then make three or four or five times people's money. And there have been the guys who have done that badly in the sense that they have pumped companies with debt and then those debts have have led the company to collapse. And there are the folks that have done that very well, which is by building high quality companies that were then natural companies to IPO on the stock market or to be sold to some major player. And they made money. Now, even among the, the folks who did this well, there were two types. And there was, there was one who said, we'll just invest in anything, gambling, tobacco, arms, you name it, we're happy to invest. And then there were others who said, no, we have what are called negative screens. We'll keep ourselves and our investors from investing in things we don't like and that are destructive for society. So where impact investing started is it said, well, that's fine. Like, let's not invest in really bad stuff. But can't we go one step further? Can't we invest in good stuff? So not stuff that's just like neutral, it's fine, but it doesn't really help the world at all. Can we invest in things that will really help people? So maybe it's hospitals, or maybe it's a pensions company that helps people to retire with dignity, not dependence, or something like that, an insurer that protects people against the worst eventualities in their moments of real need, a good insurer. So can't we go out and find those things that are positive, really positive for society and invest in those things? So impact investing started with the idea you can intentionally go out, invest in companies that help humanity significantly or help the environment significantly, grow those companies, sell them within a defined period, and make people money while doing that good. And why I think that's so exhilarating and exciting is the simple point you made about charity, which is philanthropy is incredibly important. And I myself give, and I think everybody should give, and I'm involved in organizations, getting people to give more to many communities. But philanthropic capital is limited. Even Bill Gates, let's say you have $40 billion in the foundation and you're Bill Gates, well, they're 4 billion low-income people. So even if you could get it to all of them tomorrow with no friction whatsoever, that's $10 a person. At $2 a day of poverty subsistence, it's gone in five days. So compare that 40 billion to the capital markets where $5 trillion changes hands every day. If you can open the gates of the capital markets, you can actually have so much capital flow through to companies and organizations that serve humanity. And the only way you're going to be able to really get essential services to those 4 billion low-income and excluded people is by opening the gates of the capital markets. So I became really excited about the idea that you could serve very much more people with very much better quality product by doing it as companies and as investors who open the gates of the capital markets. And that's the mindset shift that we have to undertake. It's not that there's nice philanthropic stuff that helps society and then there's business that's amoral. We need to move towards a world where you can invest with impact that is positive and you can get outsized returns and outsized impact. Yeah, the mention of of these people being excluded 
and obviously that winds back to the the 15 year old Andy and and he's wanting to you know be inclusive and and this empathy so it's interesting that that rolls around where originally you could just see a problem and a solution and maybe you wanted the solution and now here you are with the solution but also building a business which fits in really nicely. So are there any sort of buffers integrating this idea of impact investing, which is a type of private equity, with the mainstream you know, structure? And I know you said there were, there were some sort of negative and, and some bad actors there, but are there any clear definitions that you think? I mean, you know, impact measurement is one of them, and that, that's a necessity. Well, I was on the original uh, mainstreaming impact investing working group of the World Economic Forum at Davos, and in the early days, uh, we were struggling to get people to pay attention to this space. And by the way, it's done in private equity, but it's also done now in public equity and debt. There are various ways in which people invest their money with a more positive impact intention these days. But what's changed so dramatically over the past few years is that many big groups have started moving in, and it's become an ever more popular field. So the IFC, which is part of the World Bank Group, and the Global Impact Investing Network, which is the big industry association, have both identified that the market is now worth about $500 billion. So it's getting to some pretty substantial scale. Most, of course, are not raising large or billion-dollar Australian funds like, like Leap but there are certainly enough players that it's constituting a substantial market. Now, if you look at that, the real issue today is not, hey, everybody pay attention to impact investing, although we still got to do more of that crowding of folks in. It's about how do you identify the people who are just using it as a marketing strategy, but not actually delivering. So a cynical or underbaked exercise from the folks who are doing it authentically. And then among the authentic people, how do you distinguish those who are more commercial, who are actually going to deliver a certain level of return, from those who are seeing this as another alternative to philanthropy, which is important, but essentially aren't going to deliver the returns that a institutional investor or private investor typically is seeking. And the key way in which you distinguish these things is by looking at some notions around measurement and reporting because an impact investment needs to be intentional. So you need to intend to have an impact, not just elaborately say afterwards, hey, we had this great impact. Wow, I'm an impact investor. But you need to intend to do it. You then need to measure it on an ongoing basis. And then at the end, you need to hold yourself accountable. Did we actually achieve the objectives we wanted to achieve? Now, some people think that because this is social, this has to be vague and woolly and warm fuzzy but actually where we started was investing in insurers and so we could tell you that an insurance company has things like renewal ratios and combined ratios that sounds scary but what are their renewal ratios is whether someone comes back to buy your product do your customers do that if they don't they're probably not seeing much value in what they're getting a combined ratio tells you a lot about whether the customer is getting the money that all the customers give to the insurer, how much of it they're getting back, how much of the pool is actually going to the customers and how much is being taken by the insurer, and how sustainable is the insurer. So you can look at some very hard ratios that are widely used by actuaries, the most technical, (laughs) mathematical people there are, and you can say, we can measure impact in a very quantifiable, very technical way. 
So the idea that the social is all soft and woolly is a misconception, it's a misunderstanding. You have to do some work to work out what are the impacts you want to have and how are you going to measure them. And there's, in fact, a whole set of indicators now called IRIS+. Plus, uh, and there are proprietary measurement frameworks, like LeapFrog has one, that allow you to work out what it is you're pursuing to track that impact and to hold yourself accountable at the end and to be independently verified at the end. But it exists, it's totally doable, and it's far from nebulous and vague. I'm keen to dig into your framework, but just going back to this issue of insurance, they they have these quantifiable outputs, as you said. So you'd then assume that if numbers are widely available, then inclusiveness wouldn't be a problem, that the financiers would see the opportunity and they'd take that opportunity and jump in there. So that brings me to this issue of additionality, which is the key little bugbear of impact investing. So I'd love to know how you view that balance between identifying a, uh, a business opportunity while at the same time being able to offer something unique. I'll give you an example because I think it's most revealing to tell this story. And we invested in a company called Beamer, which is a insurer that works via mobile phone selling very low-cost insurance policies, so as low as 70 cents a month, up to a few dollars. And Beamer's approach was to sell millions of those policies at very low cost and a small margin, rather than sell a 1,000 policies worth a few thousand dollars each to wealthy people. And when we invest in Beamer, it had less than a million customers and was in three markets. By the time we had our exit from Beamer, when we sold it on to Allianz, one of the largest insurers in the world, it had 20 million customers across 16 markets. And almost all of those people live on under $10 a day per person in the household, so they're technically low income, according to the World Bank. And they were getting life insurance or health insurance or protection of their assets for the first time. Now, the funny thing is that initially when Beam was created, a lot of investors looked at this and thought, wait a minute, poor people as, as customers, yuck, that's not going to work for us. LeapFrog looked at it and said, wow, millions of customers rising, getting mobile phones for the first time, getting disposable income for the first time. Boy, what's the first thing they want to do? Protect their families. So, of course, this is going to be an exciting business to invest in. So, we were able to get into that company, but... More importantly than that, that lens has allowed us to actually add a lot of value to the company because we could see that we could help them with product design. And we had a bunch of actuaries and recovering actuaries on how team and operators from insurance companies. In fact, one of my partners currently was the CEO of Old Mutual Insure, one of the largest insurers in Africa. We were able to work with them around all the conventional things, developing the team, how you report, how you work together, how you move into new markets, but we could understand the customer they were focused on and how to protect and enable that customer better than any other investment group on earth at the time. So we could help them to grow in a fundamentally different way. And then if you look beyond that to the 27 companies we've invested in, and here it's not just in insurance, but pensions, credit, remittances, healthcare of various kinds. We own, for instance, the largest pharmacy chain in East Africa. We own one of the largest distributor of orthopedic goods in India, this sort of thing. When you look at what we've been able to do, we've been able to say, 
not only are we going to give you capital that understands you, so intelligent capital, not only are we going to appear on the board each month <laughs> each or each quarter, but we are going to get involved in a few critical areas that really move the needle, whether it's product design or regulation or some other area, finding the right technical skills for you that add significant value to your company. And in fact, this is an area in which I, I joke that we're the opposite of Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett says, if they need me, I'm not interested. And LeapFrog says, unless they need us, we're not interested. Because we know that we have this special source that we're able to add. And this really makes it all go better. And it amplifies the speed of growth of the company and the profitability of the company. So unless we have a sense that we can add value, we can't have the same confidence this business will grow. And actually, the, the net effect is in, in our numbers. So we did a study of the 10 years of LeapFrog and every company we'd backed. And we asked a simple question, how fast do LeapFrog companies grow each year? Now, in developed markets, you're excited if your company is growing 2 or 3 or 4 or 5% a year, faster than in financial services, certainly faster than the economy is growing typically. And we found that LeapFrog companies grow at nearly 40% a year on average. And that's because they're targeting this fast-rising set of consumers. They're really oriented towards doing that well. And they've got capital and a backer who understands them and finds all the areas where you can move the needle the most. Now, of course, not every type of investment is as hands-on as our style of private equity investment. And I don't actually think that in order to qualify as an impact investor, you have to get this involved in the companies. But what I would say is that the more additionality you bring, the more you're having an impact on impact. And that's a, a powerful story to be able to tell as an investor seeking investment from other investors who are, who are going to invest in your private equity pool or whatever your vehicle is that then goes out and backs companies. Mm, and so the additionality comes from your unique offering. I guess, you know, I think sometimes it's viewed as being simply you've um, identified a, a target and that's the additionality. But in fact, different pools of money could go in there and it wouldn't be additional. But for you guys, you've got the funds, but you've also got the management expertise, you've got the experience to go in there that really makes a difference. And, and I guess the, the growth stands testament to that. And we did talk about impact measurement and that's, that's obviously really core to this whole field. So I'd love to dig into your unique approach to that and a problem that I often identify is in a, especially for a portfolio approach to be able to compare and contrast your different companies and the impacts you're having. So yeah, maybe you could help us understand that. Yeah, it's a huge challenge comparing different impacts or even different goods in the world. I mean, I did a PhD not in finance, but in philosophy. And there are some basic fundamental human challenges about choosing between things. Do you want some more happiness and less work meaning and more time with family and less? All these things can't be put on one simple ledger that then converts into a number at the bottom. Life is not like that. And I think that's the first thing we have to recognize. So the idea that there will one day be some perfect rubric in which all positive human goods are ranked is a total delusion, of course, and any good philosopher will tell you that. That said, there are a number of fundamental human goods, uh, you know, getting educated, getting being healthy, 
having enough financial resources to look after your family and your community being housed. These are things that very clearly have enormous value across human beings and regardless of the culture you come from. And so where we have built from is to say, what are the essential goods and the essential capabilities that people need to have in order to lead meaningful and secure lives? And how do we, our companies, bring these people a level of safety and security? So we talk about safety nets and springboards. And every product and service that a leapfrog company provides should bring some kind of safety net and springboard to low-income and excluded people, or what we call emerging consumers. So we have developed a framework that is called FIRM, F-I-I-R-M, and that stands for Financial, Impact, Innovation, and Risk Management Reporting. That is a combined framework, interestingly. It doesn't say, hey, the financial performance of the company is a totally different set of metrics, and then we have this different set of impact metrics, and then someone else does risk and compliance. Let's keep all of these things separate. And then you have the CEO, the management team, be headless chickens running after different sets of metrics, not quite knowing what you want them to focus on. Instead, we said, what is the core set of metrics that the CEO, the management team, the whole company should be oriented towards? So, for example, those renewal ratios I mentioned, from a financial perspective, If you are not having your customers come back and renew and you're having to find new customers, it's very expensive. It's probably four to ten times more expensive to get a new customer than to keep one. So it's a big issue for you. From an impact perspective, if someone's not buying it, they don't see much value in it. From an innovation perspective, how can you make that customer stickier so that you hold on to more of your customers and don't lose them so much? And from a risk management perspective, frankly, if you're losing lots and lots of your customers, your company is probably in quite a lot of trouble, and you're probably doing all sorts of not very good things that need to be fixed from a compliance perspective. So just that one ratio, renewal ratio, is something that your CEO and your management team should really be working towards. I use that as an example. In each company we invest in, we say, what are those key ratios that speak to all of these dimensions and that the CEO and the management team should not only be preoccupied by, but can be incentivized on the basis of. So we don't say impact is one thing and innovation is another and financial returns another and risk is another. We say these things have to be brought together and they have to in all operate within the incentive scheme that management operates under. We love that because it really forces you to say what metrics matter and to link performance to those metrics. And we find, and here's the big kicker, which I think is the big mindset shift for the financial markets, we find that you get what's called alpha, better returns from this purpose lens and from using this firm framework. And we're able to show it in all sorts of ways. We're able to show how investments were de-risked. We're able to show how products and distribution were enhanced in incredibly innovative ways for companies because of the firm framework. We're able to show how your ultimate financial returns were higher because you were able to show to the buyers that this was a company 
they were buying in Kenya or Ghana or India that wouldn't leave them with egg on their face, that was a safe company to buy when they're a massive listed enterprise that doesn't want to end up with a name in the papers. So they were prepared to pay a premium for that. So we can show across all these different areas that having a measurement framework that is integrated and that focuses on impact juices your returns. And some people have even called it the leapfrog premium, but we think it's something that extends far beyond how leapfrog operates and is widely adoptable and has been adopted by many. When I launched leapfrog with President Clinton just over 10 years ago now, um, we said we call for the launch of 100 leapfrogs. And of course, at the time, we had no idea what that really meant, but it ended up being hundreds of impact investors who now adopt these kinds of frameworks and are required to in order to be credible takers of investment from major investors. All right. Normally, I'd get distracted by a name drop like Bill Clinton, but I'm going to stick to the impact <laughs> measurement stuff because that's what my listeners are all about. Um, my, my team does ding, ding, ding if anyone yeah. really name drops. So I've, uh, I've disobeyed a, a rule. No, no, we, love <laughs> we love it. Bring it on. I mean, it's interesting that you've brought together a financial metric with a social sort of metric and, and putting those together. I just wonder... Um, between the companies in your portfolio, like how different are their kind of firm metrics? And do you compare a, a firm ratio from one company to the other? Or is it a little bit more you take an overview yourself, understanding the inputs? Well, we can within industries. So I, for instance, can tell you there are 146 million low-income people uh, living on under $10 a day of the people served by leapfrog companies of the 178 million total. I can tell you that all those products are quality, affordable, and relevant in certain ways. I can tell you the impacts on their lives qualitatively from these different kinds of products and services. What I can't tell you is a remittance fundamentally makes someone happier and more empowered than a pharmaceutical that they receive. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think that's, again, humanly possible, having studied a lot of philosophy. But if you look at the impacts they are profound and extend far beyond what I even imagined when I started LeapFrog. So, for example, I mentioned that pharmacy chain in East Africa. If you look at Kenya and the surrounding markets, there is a paucity of doctors. As a result, half of the frontline first engagement when people are sick goes through pharmacists. Now, the challenge is that on average, a pharmacy in Kenya, if you go and get your medication from it, one-third of the medication is placebo or fake or misprescribed. That means even if you get your kid properly diagnosed, there's a one-third chance they're going to get sicker. And so we invested in a company called Good Life that had, was started by a professor from the Columbia School of Public Health in New York and a great local team that has 100% secure supply chain that allows for the right medications to be dispensed, well-trained pharmacists. And then we built out uh, telemedicine rooms so that even if you're miles from Nairobi, you can call in and a doctor can diagnose you and tell the pharmacist what to give you. We linked up with a pathology lab so people can get their blood tested and get their vitals assessed to help with that kind of assessment. And now we're linking in insurers that can help people then pay for the medication they get. When you look at that, is it hard to work out the impact there? No, fundamentally, you're having people who were going to be sick not be sick. The gap is so enormous. It's not marginal in terms of life experience and children 
surviving or being healthy rather than dying or constantly being ill. And you're able to say, look at the positive financial results of this, because one of the fascinating things about pharmacy chains is it's a bulk buying exercise. And if you have 50 stores, as we now have, it started at 20 when we invested, but 50 stores, you can actually get people those medications at much lower cost than the bad pharmacies who aren't putting things into infrastructure. So they've actually been able now to offer a better quality service at lower cost. So you're not even looking at how do we evaluate trade-offs in this complex area. You're able to quite demonstrate that the result is better, the affordability is better, and there's no ambiguity about it in this kind of case. Now, what we try and do for each company is we try and look at what are those metrics that are going to be so self-evident that, sure, there are gray areas in measurement, but for each of these companies... Once we show you the numbers, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And by the way, the kicker on that story is think how much better that experience is at Good Life than what we get here at the top of the Human Development Index in Sydney, Australia. You have to first go to your doctor. They have to give you a prescription. You have to walk up the road to the pharmacy. Then the pharmacy dispenses the medication. Then you've got to work out how it works with your insurer, try and get your money paid back. You've got to engage with the government to get the medication. Instead, in Kenya... In a much poorer country with a much less infrastructure, you walk in and you have an Apple-like experience. In that one place, you can potentially get everything you need all in one shot. And so there's also something extraordinary that is happening here, which is in these contexts and with these metrics, there's a frugal innovation where you're having new business models and forms of integration invented that are very powerful and actually teach Western and developed countries how to move forward in a much more efficient way. And my goodness, wouldn't it be great if we could get better healthcare, better insurance, better delivery of all these essential services here in Australia, or for that matter, in New York or London? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I imagine your um, impact reports are really fabulous. They've got those metrics specific to a company, really great stories about, about the impact on individuals. And I'm sure there's no doubt from your investors of the, the value there. But I worry, you know, we've got this encroaching impact washing. And you've got providers who might not be as focused on inclusion and empathy as you are. Is there a worry that we don't have the, the rigorous accounting frameworks and that sort of thing? I mean, I'm sure that that's related to your work at the IF, IFC. <laughs> Absolutely. Sort of thing, so, so. so this is something that the CEO of the IFC, which is the private sector investment arm of the World Bank, and I have been very concerned about for a number of years. And what we felt was important is not to say, here are all the best things in the world that everybody has to pursue, but rather what are the basic standards someone has to meet to be an impact investor. And we asked this because we suddenly saw all these mega players that have tens of billions of dollars under management headed towards the space that we had been investing in. And we thought if they just use this as a cynical marketing ploy or don't commit to it adequately, or for that matter, if others do it, it's going to really be damaging for the industry and the, the effort that we've undertaken. So we then involved uh, a quite large number of players who collectively manage trillions of dollars, frankly, to co-design a set of principles called the operating principles for impact management. Now, these are not maxima. These are what are the basic standards you have to meet to qualify. And they are the things I spoke about earlier, namely intention, stating and quantifying the impact you want to have upfront that you show that you regularly measured that, <laughs> that you report afterwards, and 
the one that's been most challenging for people is that it be independently verified. Now, that can be by a major accounting firm or audit firm, or it could be by a committee of independent individuals, but there has to be some ability to be held accountable by someone who's not yourself and that has credibility. And we launched the draft principles last year in Bali, and we've just recently launched the principles out of uh, Washington uh, with 60 different signatories. And the effort now is to get that to hundreds of signatories who say we will adopt this across our frameworks for investing. And some very, very large players have come on board. What we want to see is once the reports start coming out, people have to report yearly on this now, that they're doing it authentically, that they're showing that they meet those standards. Now, within those principles or or building on those principles, you can have lots of different measurement frameworks, just like we have one called FIRM that we would say instantiates or takes account of all of those principles. Someone else can have a different proprietary framework and a different one and a different one. That, that, that's not what's important. It's that that framework works towards fulfilling those nine principles well. And my hope is actually that now that we have a basic grounding for the field that has been widely endorsed by a number of the industry associations, you're going to have the wheat winnowed from the chaff. So those who are not doing it properly, who are doing it cynically, who are not fulfilling the real objectives, will slowly be exposed by investors who are looking at this, understanding what the framework is to look at this. It'll sort of be up to the investors to say, oh, hang on, you're not following the standards. Yeah, and I I think that there are so many investors that are reputation sensitive because if you are a major institution with 10 billion or a trillion dollars under management, you are really going to care about not investing in something that turns out to be hypocrisy and falsehood. It's way too damaging for your share price. It's increasingly hard to avoid, even if you try, when you're actually doing it, because there's much more exposure in this world than there once was. There's much more transparency and visibility. And so I think there are very strong incentives for major institutions to start using these principles and to pursue them. And I think increasingly capital will flow to those who are doing it properly. And frankly, I really hope that these very big players who are entering the space are going to commit to it properly and do it properly because that's how you open the gates of the capital markets. You get players of every size to do it properly. But now at least they and others know what they need to do. And talking of big players, you guys are rapidly becoming a big player. Your, your latest fund hit a record one billion Australian dollars for a, a pure impact fund. So, yeah, I'd love to hear about that. And, you know, how is it different to your past funds? Well, we see ourselves as replicating a successful strategy uh, for all that people like to claim to be pioneers and uh, glorious innovators. We think that what's really important is to have a formula that doesn't lose people money. So to date, LeapFrog has a 0% loss ratio. We've never lost investors' money on realization or on exit of an asset. And then generates, you know, in various investments, two or three or four times people's money. 
And where you create a proposition like that, that you can show is replicable, that's where money flows to you. Not because you just have some sizzle and it's really cool what you're doing. Of course, it's great to, to be cool. Not that I've ever had that real experience personally. But uh, fundamentally, you want something that is a replicable strategy. So when we look at our funds, essentially what we've been doing is learning and learning what works and what doesn't work. And we think our returns and our results get better and better through the years as we learn what to do right and what to avoid. So this is our fourth vehicle, our third fund. It is larger than the others, but really it's the same idea of investing, you know, typically 20 to $50 million per company growing those companies in either financial services or healthcare so that they become appealing to very large strategic buyers. Uh, and we've had the likes of Swiss Re and Standard Chartered and Fidelity and Prudential UK buy into our companies and pay a premium for that, or so that they become appealing to list on the stock market so that other people can get access to this great story and LeapFrog can then pass on the baton. What is different about this fund is scale also in terms of impact. So previously when I started LeapFrog, we said we would reach through our companies 25 million low-income people within 10 years with essential services. We obviously achieved that by some multiples, but this fund on its own aims to reach 70 million low-income people with healthcare or financial tools. And we may get beyond that, but that is uh, an ambition that would mean you know, the equivalent of two and a half Australias or more than the entire population of Germany or the UK. And when you think about that kind of impact from one fund vehicle alone, you feel quite inspired. It'll certainly inspire me to wake up doing this fund for the years to come. And also, I think what is different is for those very big institutions that do think in terms of how do we deploy many billions like Future Fund or HESTA or First State Super here in Australia or for that matter overseas, the JP Morgans and so on, uh, when, you, when you look at those mega institutions, they do need to deploy very large licks of capital and leapfrog funds and similar funds that have been created become a conduit for doing that and for really getting into impact at scale and highly commercially. And at the same time, I think that helps shift mindsets so that all the rest of us who don't have a billion dollars to put down may have a few thousand or maybe a few million, but where people want to put down money into impact investing can see that there are lots of paths to do that so that you can go to your financial advisor or your super fund and say, hey, Hester, whoever it is, I know that you actually care about impact. And I'd like to invest in that option, or I'd like to encourage you to invest more in this space. And it becomes a basis on which you become more connected to either your financial advisor or the financial institution that, that holds your capital like, or that you invest with, like your super fund. And it gives them the opportunity to expand what they invest in and to serve and relate to their members even better. So I'm hoping that this kind of fund, I guess in summary, doesn't just have a direct impact, but because of its scale and because of its inspirational mission, gets people motivated and changes mindsets in a very different way. And that's when the world changes fundamentally, when good people 
change. You know, Nelson Mandela was asked, uh, what's the biggest thing you've done? He didn't say, I liberated a country. He said, I brought hope. And there's something about this that brings the hope that your money can do good. It doesn't just have to be this very cold, clinical, amoral thing. Yeah, I mean, the thing that struck me about the news reports of the new fund were the dollar figures, was the the highlight thing. You know, that was the key thing um, that was pushed forward. And and in that way, it seemed like any other big PE fund. There was mention of the, you know, it's going to reach 70 million excluded customers. It's really difficult in a press release to to have a figure like that to to really explain the impact. Can you do that, I guess, is the question. And do you see a future where the $1 billion figure will be up there, but then there'll be an impact figure? And that will... Absolutely. And not just a future. We, from the start, have said we will get top-tier returns for investors. That's our aim. And we will reach 25 million people. And then when we pass that, we said it'll be 100 million and so on. So we constantly have had both a profit and a purpose figure in view. Increasingly, we're able to show how the purpose figure drives the profit figure and the profit figure drives the purpose figure. In other words, if you make more profit and you create more revenue, you're able to serve more people. And in fact, you're doing that by serving more people. And conversely, if you are reaching ever more people with quality product and they come back and they keep buying, you're able to generate more revenues and more profits. So that red thread between profit and purpose, between money and meaning, is being drawn ever closer across ever more industries. What I think we and others need to be better at is telling the story with both a quantitative and a qualitative lens, as you said, about how these companies do it. So, for example, you can look at a world remit, which is one of the companies we've invested in with two legendary Silicon Valley venture capital firms, TCV and Excel Partners. And this company provides remittances to people. Now, you had the the mega players like Western Union charging people maybe 15% to remit their money. Now, imagine you were asked, for 15% every time you sent money across to your your mum or your grandkids, you wouldn't be very happy with the bank or the remitter that was doing that. Now, Western Union had to develop in a pre-digital world a very large branch infrastructure that made that their business model. World Remit came along and was founded by a Somali migrant and digitized everything. You cash out on your mobile phone, you cash in on your mobile phone. They don't necessarily use the SWIFT system. They do all sorts of clever things like that. And they were able to lower the cost of remittances from that 15% or sometimes 10% in the industry down to two. So now when you are a migrant and you're sending money home, you know that 98% of that money is actually going to reach the family that's going to pay for education or pay for grandma's health care or whatever it is, and suddenly you say, you know what, I'm going to send more money back. I'm not having huge chunks of it taken. It's actually serving the purpose I wanted to serve. So now the revenue of World Remit goes up because every migrant is willing to send more. And the family writes back and says, look at the use we're putting to this. So you get into this positive spiral of higher margins for World Remit, lower costs for customers, when we invested in Wildermit, we thought this is a brilliant business. This is, operates across you know, 150 countries. It's going to have a tremendous impact, but it's also going to disrupt something that obviously doesn't work very well in this world. 
And as we've moved forward, we've thought more and more about how do you tell these stories, not just the stories of the migrants affected, and obviously we could go out and do 146 million of those stories, but about how these companies have actually revolutionized their industries with clever, frugal innovation, and how when you look at their business models, they're actually superior in a very fundamental way to non-impact models. There is no way that a group with big infrastructure that is operating in the old world, that is whatever there is, 10 or 15% they're charging, can get down to charging 2%. It's a business model that can't compete against this kind of impact and innovation business model. So we think there's a story really to be told there that can help fundamentally shift mindsets and markets. And that's part of what we're trying to do. Of course, in one sense, you say we're big, but in another sense, we're a small group in terms of the capital markets and the scale of the world. And so to tell people about this more catalytic kind of capitalism uh, is something we need to do more of, but we also just need more champions, more people out there telling the story, which has the great virtue of being both true and exciting. Yeah. I wonder in, I guess, having an impact and, and taking it broader and bringing it back to yourself and inclusiveness and empathy and, and bringing that out. Do you feel that yourself, you've had an influence on the, the world of private equity and, uh, and, and just investors generally? Yeah, I obviously haven't done it alone. I'm in the very fortunate position of getting to represent a, an amazing team where almost everybody is better than me at something <laughs> that we do. And that's a brilliant thing that I get to learn from them and I get to work with this team and it is a partnership. So we collectively, I think, have really shifted mindsets and markets in some pretty fundamental ways. We see some of the world's biggest insurers, which are multi-trillion dollar businesses, adopting, creating emerging consumer divisions, adopting these approaches to try and reach this new market of billions of rising people using digital methods. We see, and we in fact won the uh, gold medal of the International Insurance Society for how we'd shifted the industry in that respect. And remember that a huge portion of the world's capital is held by insurers. We see a lot of big investors, whether in the public markets or the private markets, moving towards impact, starting impact strategies. And all of those are backing a whole lot of companies. So if you have hundreds of groups, each backing, tens and one day perhaps hundreds of companies, and each of those serves, if not thousands, maybe millions of people, you can start seeing the scale of impact that might happen. I would say we've done it alongside a whole lot of other pioneers. So there have been really remarkable people like my friend Ronnie Cohen, Sir Ronald, who, has, uh, who have championed this sector, this uh, st type of strategy. Uh, and I think we've seen folks like the World Economic Forum and others get behind the impact story. And it really is a, a movement that people can find their place in and I would say that the key thing is not to be seeking glory. It is to be seeking a really collaborative effort to change mindsets and markets because we're a very 
I think, collaborative group. One of the things I've noticed about impact investors is we see, you know, that half of humanity is suddenly on the grid because of mobile phones, that the cost of reaching them has dropped a hundredfold. We all turn around and we say, wow, there is a big blue ocean there that everyone can dive into. We're not competing for a tiny little segment that is already not growing. And so we tend to collaborate a lot more than folks who don't have this kind of mindset and this kind of sense of a revolution in the way markets are going to operate and a multi-trillion dollar opportunity that is coming our way. And I think one of the most exciting things about what I've been able to do over the past 10 years is to be a, a servant of that change. I do think demonstration beats remonstration. In other words, the, the doing, the building, and showing the proof points that LeapFrog and its companies show ultimately is more important than talking about it. But I fundamentally think that now that we have 10 years and some others have a decent track record as well of showing it in this industry, that talking about it has become incredibly important because without people getting the picture, we won't shift markets and mindsets in the fundamental way we need to, and we won't have the kind of catalytic capitalism we need to. You know, I look at the, the Democratic presidential candidates uh, in the paper in the morning and the latest comment about we need a different kind of capitalism, and I want to sort of lift up the hand, my hand and those of all the impact investors and say, hey, over here, look this way. There are very clear examples of doing things better, and it's not hopey-changey. It's real, it's effective, and it's quantitative. So I'm very satisfied at what we've been able to do. But as I say, I think we have a long way to go and a lot to do. Leapfrog, for instance, you may think 178 million people is a lot of people. Yes, it's six Australias in terms of population. But we think we and we have a new target, which is by 2030, in the next 10 years, to reach a billion people with essential services through our companies. And so if you think of that, there's a huge way to go, and we can't be that proud of what we've accomplished yet because it's a drop in the ocean compared to what we need to accomplish. And even that is not going to be the 4 billion people and all the essential services. So there really needs to be a movement, and there really needs to be a coalition of the willing of investors that open the gates of the capital markets so that trillions can flow through. Yeah, very good. And I think going from sort of the macro of influencing these huge organisations, bringing it down a little bit more practical to the listeners, um, you know, you've, I'm sure, employed lots of people and, and all of the things we've talked about are, I'm sure, spiking a lot of people, you know, a lot of people sitting in the finance industry wanting to work with a bit more purpose, maybe feeling a, in a little bit of a, a hamster wheel. What, what advice would you give them? I think there's this deep hunger that's sometimes built on a real sadness for greater meaning in our lives, to, to get out of the hamster wheel and to feel that the work we do is changing the world. And I think in all of us, there's actually a desire to build assets and security for our families and our community, but also to have a real impact on our community and on the wider world. And it's pretty sad when you have to suppress that in yourself. And what I have hoped to do in supporting the social entrepreneurial movement, in building impact investing movements and companies and social businesses, is show people that there are better ways to proceed, that you don't have to choose between money and meaning, that this can be an amazing synergy, and that there are places, whether it's 
companies that exist or investors that are pivoting in this direction or companies you could create or a social enterprise that your organization that's a nonprofit could create, there are places where you can express those aspects of yourself, where you can be a whole person with both money and meaning, both helping yourself and your family and helping communities and others. There are those places where you can find yourself or you can help your company, your institution progress in that direction. I really believe we're at a very different point to 20 years ago or 40 years ago. I think our parents and our grandparents often had to choose. They had to get to security, and then they could turn around and give away some of the money they had built up. I think we can be hybrids. (laughs) We can put those two things together. We don't have to wait to have an impact. And I think if anybody is telling you that, that you have to wait or just do this or first think about this, I think they're probably misleading you. And you should go out and find a place where you can be a whole person and then you will be expressing your full self and achieve the most that you can achieve. You align your passion behind that purpose. Yeah, are there any sort of opportunities that you, that you look at and you go, wow, if, you know, if I was a 25-year-old broker, <laughs> that's what I'd be doing? Well, LeapFrog invests in healthcare and financial services. Uh, and obviously, there's a lot to do there. There is you know, the Aboriginal community and communities and a whole lot of other excluded regional and rural communities where obviously if we can find models that serve underserved people better, uh, it would be amazing and inspirational in Australia. I also think there are sectors like distributed energy, these uh, off-grid energy boxes, the cook stoves, these sorts of areas that are very exciting investment destinations. Education is a big one. You had ABC Learning Centers here, 700 child care centers, not a, not a small multi-hundred million dollar exercise, not a small impact or small enterprise. Aged care, dementia care, th- these are areas where social infrastructure, like hospitals, these are areas where there are tremendous opportunities because society is undergoing such rapid changes and there are such profound needs. And in the end, business is a social institution. Business is about serving real needs. And where you do that brilliantly, you're going to be able to make more money and make your business more sustainable and attract better talent and inspire regulators to support you. So I think finding those areas is important. And people ask me, you know, is there one place you should start? Actually, I don't think that at all. In fact, I, don't, I think we've got a great area, but it doesn't mean it's the best area for you. I think finding an area you're passionate to make a difference and then saying who is underserved and what do they need and what companies or investors can be mobilized to serve that need, that's very powerful. And if you think about what Alibaba did, think about what Apple did, think about some of the, you know, Walmart, Prudential, some of the greatest companies, biggest companies in the world, they started by saying, what does the customer need? And by going door to door to serve those underserved needs, the man from the Pru who got a penny for an insurance policy in the 19th century, and now look how big it is. Alibaba or, or Amazon, we're going to serve that customer you know, faster, better, cheaper, and try and help them work out what they need most. 
These are the kinds of orientations that I think can make a, a real difference. So start at the need and at the customer and work backwards. Uh, and in terms of what you're passionate, the problems you're passionate to solve, don't start by saying, aha, if I did X, someone would give me money for it. I think that's right. And, and I think that's a great way to end. Well, actually, second last question, actually, because, you know, on the one hand, you know, that's a great list of, of sectors and industries that I think have a, an amazing, you know, runway for the next couple of decades. But I think the key point that I'm taking away from today is that the sector doesn't really matter because it's the, the way you manage that money coming in and it's the skill set and it's the business model innovation that's really going to change it. And if you have that mindset, then the whole world's open to shifting and changing and it's not a matter of, oh, damn it, we miss renewable power or solar's done or all of these things. There's so much. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, there, there are many, many multi-decade, multi-billion opportunities out there if only people will see them. So when I started out talking about emerging consumers and serving tens of millions of people, other people were just looking at low-income people and saying, ooh, poverty, yuck. And I saw half of humanity ready to acquire quality services and products if only you delivered it to them in an affordable way. So I, I do think it's about really the lens you put on and the way you approach the world. And isn't that the way it always is with things? It's how you see and how you decide to see. Taking a different approach allows you to see opportunity more and not just do what everybody else is doing, which is A, boring and probably not going to generate very good returns. Yeah, well, and thanks for helping us, you know, see through your eyes and, and a different perspective on it all. I've certainly soaked a lot of that up. And to just get one a little bit deeper, one more insight, it'd be great to get a book recommendation or a couple, whatever ah. you're reading, books from the past, <laughs> anything that really got you going. Uh, I'm an obsessive reader, so I'll, I'll try and be short. Uh, look, for, for this customer centricity, there are two very interesting books. The one is The Everything Store about Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon. And the other is called Alibaba, the house that Jack built, uh, about Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba. What I like about those books is the clarity that those founders had about what they were trying to achieve and what the measurements were. And every technique and approach and hire and product and strategy they came up with was oriented towards that fundamental vision and value and sense of priorities. And I sometimes think that that is the critical thing in business, to have that very intense orientation to what you're trying to achieve and shape it. And they really designed everything from the customer backwards. I love those kinds of books that give you that vision. I also have a, an odd recommendation, which is one called Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World. And what I love about that and another book called The New Silk Road is that they reveal that we have this image in the West of how we created the modern world with all this, uh, you know, that the, the, the West... Europe, etc., were the innovators, were the ones who ended torture and brought human rights and, and so on and so forth. And in fact, we, we just need to see that the Industrial Revolution and the Enlightenment are about 250 years old. The world and societies have been going on for a lot longer than that. That if you look at Genghis Khan, he was so vilified in large part because he beat Europe in wars and China. 
and he outlawed all sorts of outrageous things that the West was perfectly comfortable with, like witch burnings and things like that. He was brilliant at adopting technologies. He introduced meritocracy. And that's why he won wars, because he promoted people of the countries and societies he conquered. He did a skills analysis and he promoted them into his army and into his management infrastructure based on their skills and their merit. And so when they ended up competing against groups and societies that didn't do merit, that did, you're in the position as a general because your father was a general and your grandfather was a general, Genghis Khan and his people won. So they introduced meritocracy in a way that the West hadn't. And I think it's just wonderful to think about the world that way and that's much within that much broader frame and to see where you can glean insights and take off the glasses that people have given you about where innovation and progress come from and see that it can come from so many different places. And I'm constantly struck by how many innovations from developing countries are relevant for developed countries and how badly we do some stuff in Australia or Europe or the US that is actually done brilliantly in other markets. Like Kenya, there's a money transfer that operates seamlessly called M-Pesa that the vast majority of the population uses very simply. And we can transfer capital between you and me very simply. We don't go through banks. We just get stuff done. And so they've disintermediated all the middle people uh, in so many effective ways, and they have a much more effective economy as a result. So my sense is that progress comes from places you don't expect. When you read great literature, it helps you to see the world in a different light, and it also sometimes helps you, coming full circle in our discussion, to see the world from the perspective of those who now are outsiders but might actually have better ideas than you have. Yeah, well, we have to be, you know, really careful not to believe our own propaganda. <laughs> and, and that, you know, talking about Genghis Khan made me think of, you know, doing a lot of work with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island peoples. And, you know, now the records are going back to 65,000 years ago. And, you know, to try and think that we're the source of civilization and to think that, <laughs> no, you know, and Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu talking about the uh, agricultural technologies that were kind of shunned and ignored or, I guess, scratched from the history books by the um, English colonialists. So, uh, look, literature really is at the core there and um, oh, look, so many questions about Genghis Khan would love to talk about why they got beaten and it was, it a, was it a problem with scale and decentralized warrior units but um, but look, I, I do think just 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 to say you know um, Gandhi was once asked what do you think of Western civilization and he said I think it would be a good idea <laughs> now I'm not that skeptical and you know I'm very lucky to be a product of places like Cambridge and Harvard that are the epitome of what Western civilization has done well. And I'm very lucky to live in one of the greatest countries on earth in terms of some of the things that the West has been able to achieve. But what I do think is that when you've had success, you can often be blinded to all the blind spots you have. You can often fail to consider things from the perspective of the outsider or the perspective of difference. And I think that's the constant struggle for societies like Australia and for people who are relatively wealthy or in industries like finance that are strong, to really see it from the perspective of the outsider or the disadvantaged customer or someone who isn't as empowered as you are. But I think that that reframing towards empathy and inclusion 
really changes how effective you're able to be both as a human being and as a business leader. Well, that's it. And I think as soon as you think that you're the smartest one in the room, then there's a problem. So, you know, we need, I think we need to be humble enough, you know, to appreciate that we can always learn and there's so many advantages there and, and that'll push you ahead. So, yeah, very good. Very good. Well, look, it's been a genuine thrill. I've really, you know, I've wanted to speak to you for so many years and uh, a bit of a fanboy moment, but glad, you know, thank you so much for um, suffering all of my questions. There's some really good insights there. And, you know, I thought I'd read all of your stuff and I thought I was sort of across it, but there really were some some great light bulb moments there about the value of, of that management value add and all of those elements. So I'll definitely be digging into this one and making lots more notes. Good luck with it all. We'll definitely have to stay in touch and, and follow your progress. So thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, it's one of the things about humility is that you realize how how much more there is to do and how what you've done is limited there's a profound moment here where people can work together to achieve a lot more people think it's glorious being a pioneer but actually it's very tough to and and lonely a lot of being a pioneer so i think the more points of light you can create and the more people can collaborate, the easier it becomes for everybody and to, and to get good breakthroughs. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Good stuff working together. That's what it's all about. Cheers, then.